0: Welcome to Beliefs of the Heart Weekly Reflection. I'm Sam Williamson, and today we're discussing political popular science. A hundred years ago, prominent elements of Western world's political and intellectual elite embraced a new and exciting scientific theory. Leaders cheered it, from conservative and progressive parties, from among the rich and poor, from feminists and misogynists. Its theory was a natural evolution of Darwinism, and it was applauded by scientists like Alexander Graham Bell and Charles Tavenport. Politicians like Woodrow Wilson and Winston Churchill. Authors like George Bernard Shaw and H.G. Wells. Activists like Margaret Sanger and Francis Galton, a cousin of Darwin. University presidents from Harvard and Stanford praised it. High schools and colleges taught it. Mainstream media loved it. To doubt it, brought scorn, ridicule, and accusations of ignorance. It united thinkers from the United States, Canada, Australia, Asia, Britain, and Europe. Because of it, most U.S. states adopted laws that affected marriage, immigration, and treatment of mental patients. In 1927, the United States Supreme Court upheld such supporting laws. Enormous funding furthered its advancement. Societies were established to promote its message and enact laws that bolstered its meaning. It was backed by the American Medical Association, the National Academy of Sciences, and the National Research Council. To deny it was to deny science and to invite disgrace. Darwin's activist cousin Galton coined the name for this scientific, quote, discovery, end quote, eugenics. When science births pseudoscience. Eugenics is control of human reproduction to increase qualities its sponsors support, that is, to make people more like themselves, and to eliminate traits its biased backers despise. Today, we know that the theory of eugenics was pseudoscience, a belief backed by personal bias without scientific process. People just wanted it to be true. Its acceptance resulted in tens of thousands of forced sterilizations. California administered the most. And ultimately, it led to the forced extermination of millions under the Nazis who backed eugenics religiously. Why would scientists and intellectuals and politicians support such a fairy tale hypothesis? Thomas Kuhn answers this question in his 1962 book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, a book that challenged the modern understanding of scientific progress. Kuhn disputed the classic idea of the scientific process, which believed progress was built on impartial, methodical contributions, much like a wall is built by placing one brick on another. Instead, Kuhn argued, scientists have biases based on a blend of enthusiasm, education, and personal culture. These biases interpret data in ways that support their prejudices. A consensus among scientists create a prevailing pattern of assumptions, a scientific zeitgeist. Science continues to add additional data, brick by brick, but soon contrary information arises. At first, it is explained away by the dominant prejudices. Eventually, though, the weight of so many anomalies, force a revolutionary change in thinking, that Kuhn called a paradigm shift, which is exactly what happened to eugenics after World War II. The new, quote, science, end quote, of identity. Bertrand Russell, highly influential 20th century philosopher and mathematician, said... Quote, you are the product of causes that had no prevision of the end they were achieving. All your hopes, all your fears, all your loves, all the beliefs of your mind are nothing but the accidental collocation of millions of atoms and molecules. End of quote. Russell claims you were an accident. The brain cells and DNA that embody you are mere chance. If you want meaning in life, you must create it. There is no master plan to discover. Therefore, we don't find identity inside by examining that, quote, accidental collocation of atoms, end quote, nor do we find it outside by looking for a master architect. Our identity is who we choose to be. More than deity or family, our greatest loyalty, our very first commandment must be, thou shalt have no other gods besides choice. 1st Russell one. Russell had no scientific basis for lack of design. It's just an assertion. A contemporary declaration of independence from God. The God who could say, I made humanity with a design, with a specific lifestyle in mind, with my morality. If you abandon it, your life will disintegrate. These modern pseudoscientists tell us that our assertion of a God blueprint is tyranny. In fact, they say it is oppressive to tell people to live in a certain way, to get identity outside of choice. But there are three at least, logical problems with their proposition. First, if all our beliefs are just accidents, then so is Russell's, so I listen to him. Second, if I choose to believe in God's design, how can others say my choice is any less valid or any more tyrannical than their choice? Third, if I'm a goldfish, no matter what my accidental mind believes or what my open-minded choices are, when I leave the liberty of water, I'm just a beach whale, only smaller, the God who is there. But there is a God, a God different than our accidental beliefs, a God who, quote, made the earth by his power and established the world by his wisdom and who stretched out the heavens by his understanding, end of, quote, Jeremiah 10:12. A God who is, quote, acquainted with all our ways, end quote, and who calls us by name, A creator who, quote, formed our inward parts, end quote, and who hates to see his creation mutilated. An artist who calls us, quote, his masterpiece, end quote, and the, quote, crown of creation, end quote. A bridegroom who chooses us out of all the cosmos to be his beloved bride. If given a choice, I choose his life of design over the shortened life of a beached shamroo. I've told, ah, gosh, dozens, scores of my friends that I began college with physics. The idea I was going to be a tent-making missionary. so I was going to study physics. I wanted to become a nuclear physicist. But my sophomore year in college, I switched to intellectual history. But I've never told anyone the whole story. And the reality was, is in my fresh, sophomore year of college, my second year of college, I was taking a you know, required history class. It happened to be on the Enlightenment. And my professor required us to read Thomas Kuhn's Structures of Scientific Revolution. And the idea is: in the structures of scientific revolution, there are paradigms. These are systems of reality, of reality. But there'll be two different systems of reality that are irreconcilable. And an example of that was there, you had what was called the Ptolemaic planetary events or celestial movements. And then you had the Copernican. The Ptolemaic said everything revolved around the Earth. And the Copernican said everything revolved around the Sun. And they had telescopes, they had mathematical formulas that was able to predict how Mars could be here on that day. They were both systems could predict where a planet would be, where a star would be on at any place on the earth and yet the two were irreconcilable but eventually what happened was one solution just became much more obvious there were fewer anomalies fewer things that was difficult to deal with in others they were just simpler and copernican won out it was called the copernican revolution but it wasn't a migration it wasn't brick by brick by brick it was a revolution from everything revolved around the earth to everything revolved around the sun tons of formulas were thrown out to get better formulas that handle it so we understand things better. Kuhn said there's normal science and there's scientific revolutions. I was fascinated by this because I was fascinated by the beliefs that each culture, each age holds and how those normal g- beliefs grow, grow, grow. And then there's a revolution and things radically change. This first class was an Enlightenment class. And in the Enlightenment, in this age, they believed that reason or science or thinking, you had reason was supreme. There was no God. That is to say, if there was a God, he was a distant deus God. A deus God is a God that sets the world spinning. It just sits back to watch, but he doesn't interact with the world. So they did not believe in the virgin birth. They did not believe Jesus was the Savior. They did not believe in miracles. Religion for... The Enlightenment age primarily was just morality. And then in the early 1800s, the Romantics come along. And the Romantics are saying, this cold, sterile, ivory tower rationalism isn't satisfying my human heart. And the Romantics said, we want experience. We want to understand it. We don't want to study nature like scientists. We want to look through nature. We want to experience it. Uh, still no miracles though, and their religion moved more from sort of an intellectual or more moral approach to a nostalgia, to an experience, an emphasis on feeling. Uh, Schleiermacher was a famous leader in the Romantic period of theology and. He focused on the joy of Christmas. He said, it's impossible that Jesus could have been born of a virgin. That's impossible. But let's just think of the joy of Christmas. This is when Charles Dickens wrote the Christmas Carol. If you remember in the Christmas Carol, there really isn't a the Jesus. There's no, there's no God entering the earth. It's just a sentimental feel-good story. And that's what Christianity became. After that became the existentialists. And the existentialists said, you know, the feeling stuff isn't working because we're not dealing with the reality. And the reality is, if there's no God, or if God's just distant, we're all going to die. And we are just trying to numb ourselves with this sentimental feeling, with these good feelings of joy. We've got to live in the lived reality, the lived angst of a a life with no meaning because we're all going to die. And that's what Bertrand Russell was. Bertrand Russell really was an existentialist saying, look, there's no meaning, there's more purpose, but we got to make our own. Now, the postmodern person, that's us. And by the way, postmodern, you know, nobody knows what postmodern is. We all like to have a positive name. We're the Enlightenment, we're the Romantic, we're the Existentialists. But, you know, when cars first came along, they weren't called cars or automobiles, they were called horseless buggies. And a horseless buggy means... I know what it isn't. It's not a horse buggy, but I don't know what it is. So the postmodern just means we don't know what it is. But the postmodern world means we're living in a world of competing ideas. So I can believe all kinds of things that are completely contradictory. I can believe that there is no purpose, and yet I have to find a purpose. I can believe that there is no supernatural control of life. But the author of Jurassic Park, Michael Crichton, says, life finds a way even though there is no life force. Now there is no universal morality. I can choose my sexuality, I can choose my identity, and yet it is immoral, even though there's no immorality, it is immoral for you to treat me different than my choices. I'm fascinated by these radical thought shifts, these Copernican revolutions in the world that we live in. But I'm also fascinated because God, the real God, the God who is there, the God who is here, wants all of us. The Enlightenment wanted the mind. God wants the mind. The Romantics rejected the mind and they wanted the heart. Well, God wants the heart. The existentialists did not like the, uh, the denial of the, the lived intention of life. But God says, look, at I'm a fearful God that I also want you to love. You know, I'm not a tame lion, that's C.S. Lewis's spin on God. But I think it's a great spin, which is a lion is fearful and yet he's good. And so he's on our side. And the truth is God's answer alone will, will satisfy us. We can't just be the mind. We can't just be the heart. We can't just be the experience. We can't just be behavior. None of those have worked. God wants the whole person. And the world keeps trying to come up with answers. They come up with their own Copernicum revelations, revolutions, but mostly they're coming up with declarations of independence. We don't want God to rule our lives. And yet without God ruling our lives, our lives are a mess. I think that my favorite um, comment, my comment of the week goes to Stephen Fultz where he says, many intelligent people remind me of the religious leaders in Jerusalem who saw the wonderful healings and other miracles that Jesus was doing and refused to accept him as Lord. And I just think that's beautiful. This is, this is a classic uh, Stephen, not Stephen Kuhn, what was his name? Thomas Kuhn example where we have anomalies, that is to say Jesus doing healings and miracles, but we do not want to accept them because they do not fit our paradigm. And God's saying, I'm a paradigm breaker. And what we all need is our paradigms broken so that we see Jesus who he is and we and, and we worship him as Lord. Thanks for listening. Hope to see you next week. Thanks for listening. Please join us by following this podcast or liking it. And visit our website, beliefsoftheheart.com for more articles, books, videos, podcasts, and courses, all designed to foster intimate theology deepening a real relationship with the real God who is there. See you next week.